How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of English Encore. I'm your host, Nick English. Thank you all for tuning in. Today we're doing an in-depth look at the NFL playoffs after the wild card round. We're going into who I feel right now is the NHL MVP. We'll be looking at the NBA Rookie of the Year race. And then finally, we'll be going over some of the MLB offseason moves thus far. I'm just going to go through the first four games that happened this past weekend. I'm going into each game a little bit. I'm going to do a pretty in-depth one for the Bills-Texans game just because I am a Bills fan and I am from Buffalo. So starting with that game, the Bills lost to the Houston Texans 22-19 in the first game of the wild card round on Saturday afternoon. Um, the Bills blew a 16-0 lead uh, led by a Deshaun Watson comeback after he had an unreal second half in overtime. Throughout the course of the game, he only threw five incompletions. He was 20 of 25. He had one touchdown through the air, and he had another one on the ground to go along with 55 rushing yards. And after a very slow start, DeAndre Hopkins finally exploded in the second half, specifically after he had the fumble that was punched out by Tredavious White. He finished the game with six catches for 90 yards, including a huge 40-yard catch over Tredavious White and Jordan Poyer. But I thought the game really changed for the Bills when J.J. Watt was able to get a sack on 3rd and 8 and held the Bills to another field goal. Um, the Bills pretty much settled for field goals after their first opening drive touchdown for the rest of the game. That Watt sack really has changed the momentum. Uh Right after, It was during a drive right after which Hopkins had fumbled. The Bills had all the momentum. Um, if they go down and score a touchdown, in my opinion, they probably just go on to either blow them out or win that game. Because there's a huge difference between being up 16 and 20, especially going down later in the game. Um, Brian Dable, the Bills offense coordinator, took a lot of heat for his play calling down the stretch of that game, specifically using... Frank Gore more than Devin Singletary and then Josh Allen had a really bad second half and it kind of doomed the offense he was very inaccurate after a very good first half um, in which his receivers actually dropped a few balls specifically John Brown on the sideline getting his feet down and then Duke Williams had a potential touchdown grab that he was unable to reel in but as the game progressed it pretty much just got worse and worse for Josh Allen um, especially in overtime when he threw that deep ball and double coverage to their fullback, Patrick DeMarco. And then he tried to pitch it to Dawson Knox um, in that overtime as well, which almost ended up losing them the game. But luckily, Knox able to punch it a bound away <clears throat> from a Texas defender. excuse me. And he also had a fumble during the game as well. He also had a few passes that should have been picked off, three specifically. Um, and he really just struggled throughout the second half and overtime to really get anything going. And uh, Duke Williams had 10 targets on the game. John Brown and Colby's with their big two offseason acquisitions had 13 combined. Um, I know Duke Williams is a big body receiver, but 10 targets for a guy who's only played, I believe, in three games in the regular season. And he's shown bits and glimpses of potential, but... 10 targets in a wildcard game for a team that hasn't won since 1995 compared to giving John Byrne and Cole Beasley your two leading receivers to Baltimore, I thought was a bad job by Allen and Brian Dable. And there were definitely some uh, skeptical calls in this game, starting with the 
clock hitting zero on a third and 18 play in which the Bills would end up giving up a first down on. Then you had Josh Allen getting hit in the head, which wasn't called. And then there was an illegal block in the back or blindside block by Cody Ford on a run that could have potentially set up a game-winning field goal in overtime for the Bills. However, in my opinion, um, I'm not one to really blame the refs for the overall cost of a game unless it's something like the Rams and uh, Saints game where it was a clear and obvious pass interference call on Nikel Ruby Coleman. Um, even though the clock did hit zero and the Cody Ford block was um, was a blindside block, was a little bit iffy, um, by the definition of the rule, it was a correct call for the block. And then also, even though the clock had zero, the Bills still gave up a th- first down on third and 18. Um, and then they just didn't make any tackles. The play of the game to me was when Deshaun Watson was able to get away from Serrano and Matt Milano in overtime. When it looked like he was clearly going to get sacked, he spun out, hit Taiwan Jones in the flat, and he was able to make Micah Hyde miss going all the way down inside the 10-yard line before they were able to kick the eventual game-winning field goal. The Bills, to me, got conservative on offense and got out-coached by Bill O'Brien um, and his staff the entire second half in overtime. Not to say that the Bills don't have a big offseason ahead and have a lot of potential um, to do damage in the future. I don't think this is the last time you're going to be seeing them or Josh Allen in the playoffs, but definitely a big season ahead for Josh and the Bills. Um, he definitely needs to continue to grow and be interested to see what Dable does, whether he'll get any more head coaching opportunities or if he's going to stay in Buffalo. Um, if you're a Bills fan, the only good thing that probably happened to you on Saturday was the Tennessee Titans stunned the New England Patriots in Foxborough with a 20-13 win. Derrick Henry had 182 rushing yards and one touchdown. Uh, he was pretty much the X factor for that game. Between that and the Titans defense holding Brady to only 209 yards passing and no touchdowns with one interception. In a game where Ryan Tannehill only completed eight passes, had one touchdown and one interception. So he didn't do anything spectacular. Um, but a lot of credit to the former Patriot coach, Mike Vrabel. Um, being able to slow down his mentor, Bill Belichick, and doing a great job of just keeping the offense check. Julian Edelman didn't do anything against them. I know he had the one rushing touchdown, but only had three catches on the game. It'll be interesting to see what Brady decides to do. More than likely, I feel he's still going to come back. Um, I think the Titans' defense and run game can actually lead them farther in the playoffs than most people think. I think that's going to be a tough out for Baltimore. I know a lot of people think Baltimore can probably just um, destroy the Titans, but I think it's actually going to be a lot closer game than many think. Looking at the NFC, the Sunday uh, afternoon, uh, both afternoon games, the Saints lost another game to the Vikings, 26-20 in overtime. A lot of things going on in that game. Kirk Cousins finally silenced some critics especially on his overtime deep ball throw to Adam Thielen, which set up the game-winning touchdown to Kyle Rudolph. Delvin Cook was a beast with two touchdowns. Um, The storyline of the game to me was the Saints unable to get Alvin Kamara involved. Um, He was a guy at the beginning of the year during my podcast picks. I picked him to win MVP. He really struggled all year after he's had um, great first couple of years in the NFL. He only had 21 rushing yards and 34 receiving yards. 
Um, Taysom Hill was the leading rusher for the New Orleans Saints, so that wasn't going to help them. He also had the one receiving touchdown and threw a touchdown as well. Um, the biggest question during this game was in overtime, another kind of controversial play, and it's going to be broadcasted on a national spectrum more than most just because of how the Saints have gotten screwed in years past um, about a potential offensive pass interference call on Kyle Rudolph. It looked like he kind of pushed off a little bit. Um, to me, I thought it was the correct call. I thought the defender initiated the contact by grabbing Rudolph's arm, and then Rudolph did give him a slight push off. But um, to me, I thought that the Saints were going to end up losing that game regardless. But the other thing that comes into question now, not only about Drew Brees for retirement um, purposes because of this game, but um, it's the second year in a row where the overtime rule is kind of being brought up of whether or not it should be changed because last year you had the Patriots beat the Chiefs in overtime where the league MVP Patrick Mahomes doesn't even get to touch the ball. And same kind of thing here. You don't know if this is Drew Brees' last hurrah or not, and he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time top 10 in my opinion and he doesn't even get to touch the ball in overtime I've always been a big fan of the way college does it where both teams get the ball and you kind of just keep going back and forth until one team stops the other or you outscore the other team and I've always kind of liked the way they do that um, so that's definitely going to be a rule I think that gets brought up in the offseason but the Saints lose another heartbreaker in a game that they were heavily favored in and the Vikings stunned a lot of people, and now they get to go and face the 49ers and uh, see if they can get a win there. And then finally, the Seahawks went on the road and beat the Philadelphia Eagles 17-9. Um, poor Carson Wentz. Um, feel really bad for that guy, you know. Just a couple years ago, he was in the MVP conversation. He probably would have most likely won MVP had he not gotten hurt. And then he has to watch his team go and win a Super Bowl with Nick Foles. And now he finally gets his chance to shine again. Foles is gone. He leads an injury-plagued team to the playoffs, winning a lot of their games down the stretch. And they clinch their division and get a home game in a game that was probably winnable considering they only lost by eight. Um, and Josh McCown had to play a good majority of that game. you got to think with Carson Wentz in, they have a really good chance of winning that game. A lot of controversy around Wentz's injury just because the Jamie Clowney hit on him. Um, wasn't necessarily the cleanest hit, in my opinion. It was a direct blow to the head. Um, if you look around the media, it's kind of back and forth on whether they thought it was dirty or not. Um, the story of the game was definitely DK Metcalf, though. Seven catches for 160 yards and one touchdown by the rookie. A guy that coming out of the draft, everyone kind of just thought was a freak athlete um, just by the photos that were going around on social media of how big he was built. And he ended up slipping into the second round after many thought he could potentially be a top 10 pick prior to the combine. And Seattle looks really good right now by making that pick. Um, Marshawn Lynch didn't really do anything. Seven or Six carries for seven yards. Um, I still question bringing him back and whether or not he can really be a factor for Seattle, especially in their next game, um, if they can even get a win. And the Eagles are, were just so injury-plagued uh, throughout the season, and especially in that game, Zach Ertz is playing through 
pretty much broken ribs. Uh, Noel, Sean Jeffrey, no Aguilar. Um, Miles Sanders was banged up. Wentz goes down. So it's that it was just definitely tough because I thought the Seahawks Eagles game was probably one of my or going to be the best game of the weekend in my opinion. Um, just because both defenses are so good, I thought it was going to be a dog fight. But now we're going to see if Seattle and Russell Wilson can go on the road uh, to Lambeau Field and beat the Green Bay Packers. I think that's going to be a really good game. But um, Matt LaFleur has done a really good job there of getting Aaron Rodgers um, kind of rejuvenated and getting that home field advantage is definitely big for them. Um, but definitely a wild uh, weekend for the wild card games. A lot of good games, a couple overtime games. Heartbreak for the Bills, heartbreak for the Saints, upset for the Titans, and then just a, uh unfortunate situation with Wentz going down. So now taking a look at the NBA Rookie of the Year race, I'm talk about four players who I think are currently in contention for that award. You know, beginning of the year, I think everyone thought the top three picks were going to be the guys contending for it. Um, and Zion Williamson, John Morant, and R.J. Barrett. Um, Zion has yet to play a game. R.J. Barrett's kind of had his ups and downs. And John Morant, to me right now, is a clear favorite to win Rookie of the Year. He's been um, very good all year. He's been the most consistent rookie. He's averaging 17.6 points, 6.6 assists, and 3.2 rebounds while also shooting 47% from the field and 40% from three. And has Memphis actually sitting two spots out of a of a eight seed in the Western Conference which was really tough, considering the West is a lot better than the East. Uh, second, I have Kendrick Nunn of the Miami Heat. He's averaging 15.4 points, 3.7 assists, 2.3 rebounds, 43% from the field, and 34% from three. Um, the biggest reason I have him in there is because he was an undrafted rookie who has now been starting for the Heat for the vast majority of their games, and they're sitting in second in the Eastern Conference. I just think it's going to be tough for him to win just because even though he is undrafted and it's a good story, I just think John Morant's a more talented player. And down the stretch of the season, I think it'll be interesting to see if Kendrick Nunn continues to start or if they lean to Goran Dragic, who's the veteran and has been capable of starting most of his career. The third guy I have is P.J. Washington of the Hornets. 12.6 points, 1.9 assists, 5.4 rebounds, 48% of the field, and 40% from three. He's done a really nice job stepping into a team that really wasn't expected to do anything this year. Um, they haven't been good by any stretch, but he's really been a spark for them, giving them valuable minutes throughout the course of the year so far. And I could think he's only can continue to get better. And him and Bridges are going to be two big pieces to build around for the Hornets in the future. And then fourth, and actually another member of the Miami Heat, Tyler Hero. Uh, I think he's surprising a lot of people just because he's pretty much that primary 6-7 guy on the bench, but he's averaging 13.3 points, 2.1 assists, and 4 rebounds per game on 41% from the field and 38% from 3. This kid's really not afraid of anything or anyone. He's already made some big shots this year. Um, you can tell he has like a little bit of swagger to him. Just the way he handled himself in the media. Um, Jimmy Butler's always hyping him up. Um, and I think he's going to play a pivotal role down the stretch for Miami. Because I think they're definitely going to be making a playoff run. So I think eventually it's going to come down to Morant 
Hero, and potentially Zion. Um, we've seen people in the past, such as Patrick Ewing, Brandon Roy, um, play a limited amount of games and still win Rookie of the Year. So if Zion can come back in the next few weeks or so and he still plays 40 games or so and just absolutely dominates, there's still no question he could end up winning it. But if I had to pick today, I think John Morant um, is the clear-cut favorite to win Rookie of the Year. Uh, transferring over to NHL, I want to talk about the MVP race. I'm going to go through five players who I think are the top five overall right now and then where I think it will end up at the end of the year. So right now, number one, I think it's pretty obvious that Connor McDavid is um, the MVP of the league. He's got 24 goals, 45 assists for 69 points. He is a minus two, and his team is at 23-17-5. They really started off hot at the beginning of the year, and now they've kind of fallen in the middle pack of the Western Conference. Um, second guy I have is Nathan McKinnon. 25 goals, 39-6 for 64 points, and a plus-two rating. 25-14-4 for the Avalanche. Um, the Avalanche have really come on strong after they had a little bit of a slow start. Um, Avalanche were my preseason pick to win the Stanley Cup. I just think they have a really, really talented team between McKinnon, Rantanen, Kale McCarr, who's going to be competing um, for the Rookie of the Year. And he pretty much significantly increased his chances with Injury to Victor Olofsson of Buffalo. And it's pretty clear cut that the Avalanche have finally gotten things back and rolling. And they're one of the top teams in the Western Conference. And then I have David Pasternak at 3. 31 goals, 30 assists, 61 points, and plus 12 for the Boston Bruins. They're 24, 8, and 11 for 59 points. Right now they're number one in the Atlantic Division. Um, him and... Brad Marchand have been incredible together this year. Um, Marchand was another person I was considering putting on here, but I just think Pasternak is just so much more um, of a factor on the ice. I know Marchand does a really good job um, finding guys back door, and I think he's a better passer than Pasternak, but um, they call him Pasta for a reason. He just does a lot of things on the ice that a lot of other people in the NHL can't do. Um, he's leading his team to another big uh, run, looks like, coming up here for the Bruins. And wouldn't be surprised at all if they end up finding their way back into another Stanley Cup. Number four, I have Jack Eichel of the Buffalo Sabres. 26 goals, 29 assists for 55 points. And is currently a plus 10. Sabres are 19, 17, and 7 for 45 points currently. And then fifth, I have Patrick Kane of the Blackhawks, 24 goals, 30 assists for 54 points and plus one, 19, 18, and six record for 44 points. Um, there are definitely more players, like I mentioned before, Marchand um, and other guys like Wheeler that have more points than guys like Eichel and Kane. But I just think their impact overall, the things or how bad the Blackhawks and Sabres would be if Kane and Eichel were on their team is something I think should factor high um, in this type of voting. Um, but I just think it's going to be hard for Eichel and Kane to really um, win the MVP or get up higher just because um, their teams are still struggling right now. Chicago's last in their division, and then the Sabres are kind of in the middle of the pack. They're only a few points out of a wild card spot, and they're only a few points out of their uh, third place in the division. But 
if neither of those teams make the playoffs, it's going to be really hard for those guys to make a case when there's a good likelihood that McDavid, McKinnon, and Pasternak are all going to be playing for playoff teams. Um, at the end of the year, I personally think that David Pasternak is going to win the MVP, and I think the other two guys that are going to be in the voting is going to be Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel. Uh, just because I think not only would it be a cool storyline if Eichel and McDavid were in the finals for voting, but I think just Eichel's so motivated by the fact that McDavid's getting all this hype around him still. And even though I think a lot more people, media, and around the world, just as fans, are starting to recognize that the gap um, between McDavid and Eichel is actually not as broad as a lot of people thought it was when they first got drafted, um, I think that motivation alone and trying to get the Sabres to the playoffs and if they can kind of sneak in there, um, I think Eichel can pretty much elevate himself to that third spot or maybe even higher. Maybe he could potentially win it, especially depending on where they finish. Um, Jeff Skinner's hurt, as I mentioned before. Victor Olofsson's hurt now. They have a really bad defensive core. Um, Goaltending's been very up and down. So if he can lead um, a team that really doesn't have a ton of talent on it besides him, and Sam Reinhardt and Rasmus Dahlin to a playoff and continue to put up the points at a record pace for his career like he is currently doing. He's uh, currently projected over 100 points. Um, he could easily finish in top three, but I just think David Pasternak's on such a good team, and he fits his role so well. Um, and I think they're going to have a little bit better of a record than McDavid and the Oilers at the end of the year. And I just think that even though McDavid might have more points, I think Pasternak um, does so many things uh, for his team and McDavid it's kind of tough because Leon Dreisaitl is so good as well and it's kind of like if you take one away um, from the team you'd still have the other um, and I think that actually helps a guy like Eichel who where if you take him away you don't really have another guy um, Pasternak if you take him away you still have Marshan, but I don't think he's as dominant a player um, alone as Pasternak is so I think David Pasternak is going to win the NHL MVP race end of the year and then finally going into some MLB offseason moves just going to go over quickly the five biggest moves so far um, in my opinion number five Madison Bumgarner signing a new five-year 85 million dollar deal with the Diamondbacks so he leaves the Giants number four um, catcher Yasmani Grandel left the Brewers and signed a four-year $73 million deal with the White Sox. Um, number three, I have Steven Strasburg, who re-signed with the Nationals after they won the World Series on a seven-year, $245 million deal. Um, number three, Anthony Rendon, the third baseman, leaving um, the champion Nationals and signing a seven-year, $245 million deal with the Los Angeles Angels, teaming up with Mike Trout. And then, obviously, the biggest move of the MLB offseason so far was Garrett Cole, the pitcher signing with the Yankees, nine years, $324 million, leaving the Astros after they just had an appearance in the World Series. Um, big move by the Yankees, and I think the Yankees and Nationals are going to continue to make a lot of big moves, but I wouldn't uh, count out the Angels either. It seems like they finally got um, the right pieces to really go out and do some damage in the next couple of years. And I think uh, the pitchers are really going to set the tone for free agency um, throughout the rest of the offseason, the MLB. But those are the five biggest moves I thought happened so far, in my opinion. 
uh, next week. We're going to be talking about what I think the Bills should do in the offseason. Um, we'll talk about the Sabres, um, whether or not Allmark is going to be the goalie of the future. And then finally, I'm going to look back at my predictions with the Bills schedule from the beginning of the year and some other predictions kind of just go over how I did overall. Um, spoiler, I did very well. Um, so tune in to listen to that. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Appreciate all the support. And I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. And I hope to have you all tune in next week. Thanks, everyone.